Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so I want to talk to you about uh, theocratic libertarianism. And, and this is because if you, start, if you start engaging with the culture, if you start engaging with political topics, if you start talking about uh, what you think about what's going on in the public square, at some point, someone is going to ask you, what are you? What, what position does this represent? Um, are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you an independent? What are you? What, what is this? And whatever answer you give, it probably ought to be an answer that throws them. That, um, because they're going to want to put you into a pigeonhole. They're going to want to characterize you, rep- misrepresent you, and then dismiss you. And so uh, what I want to do is suggest a particular approach to politics and culture, a particular approach to political engagement and so on. And I think that if you learn uh, how to respond to the unbelief that is going to be directed your way, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot smoother for you. So I want to talk about theocratic libertarianism, and I'm, I wanted to define uh, these terms as I go. Uh, things in our public life are gummed up enough that I believe that we can openly call for radical reform. We need to do something different. We need to do something very different. And the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. So if you want radical reform, you want reform that goes to the root. You don't want to reform the tree by snipping off a twig at the edge or pulling a leaf off of it. Um, Pulling a leaf off or snipping a twig is not radical reform. You want the ax to be laid at the root. That is radical reform. Whether, or, whether we uh, do or not, whether we call for radical reform or not, I think we Christians, believers, are going to get the same treatment. We might as well respond with something that might actually help, and we might as well respond in a way that indicates that we understand what is actually going on. We understand what's actually happening to us. Whatever the case, we are not going to be able to trim or pirouette our way out of this mess. And it is a mess. Uh, the, the way our culture was in the mid-20th century when I was born is very, very different than the culture that you are inheriting. Uh, you are inheriting uh, a, a chaotic culture. It has, that means you have more opportunities than we did but it also means that you have more challenges than we did. So this is a time of crisis. This is a time when we might as well just say what we think and let the chips fall where they may. As an insightful sailor on the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor might have said as the third wave of Japanese bombers flew over, he said, or could have said, the time for nuance has passed. This is not a time for nuance. This is a time, the conflict is getting more and more open, more and more um, shameless, more and more out there. And so we ought to accommodate ourselves to that reality. That's the way it is. 
Now, a year, a year or two ago, I forget exactly when it was, I first, I first mentioned the five smooth stones of theocratic libertarianism. And I'm going to define both the theocracy and libertarianism. Uh, I was using this in the context of uh, an illustration about David and Goliath. And as with David, I think most of our problems would probably be addressed in principle with just the first stone. Uh, David selected five stones, but he just used one. All right? I think that many of our problems could be addressed with just one of these stones. Um, and, the, and the illustration with David is this. You are up against it. Basically, the uh, secular establishment, the, the establishment of secular unbelief, controls everything, it appears. And Christians are routinely marginalized, squeezed out, not given the microphone. Um, and, and so the secular establishment is huge, and we're small. Well, Goliath... David. Goliath, David. That's where we are. Now, some people, there are two different ways that you can respond to a David and Goliath scenario. One is you can look at Goliath, you can look at Goliath and say, oh, I'm just a little, I'm just little. He's huge. How can I possibly defeat him? How can I possibly beat him? And that was the attitude that was taken by most of the men in the Israelite army. Even Saul, remember when Saul was selected as king, he was selected as king because he was a full head taller than everybody else. So Saul was a big Israelite, and Saul wasn't going out to uh, fight Goliath. And whenever Goliath would come out and taunt the armies of Israel, everybody would say, oh, he's so big, he's so big, he's so big. He's so big, I, he's so big, I couldn't possibly defeat him. He's so big, I couldn't possibly win. He's so big, I can't fight him. David's response was a little bit different. David said, or thought, he's so big, I can't miss. <laughs> I mean, look at that forehead. It's the size of a billboard. <laughs> right? So uh, David says, he's so big, in effect, he's so big, I can't miss. So, and he took Goliath out with the first Stone, but he had four others. And using this as an illustration or a little parable, I've got five features of theocratic libertarianism that I want to uh, leave with you. So here are my five smooth stones. First one, number one, Jesus is Lord. That's the first one. Jesus is Lord. And I want you to understand that Jesus is not simply Lord of some invisible spiritual place. There's not some spiritual cubbyhole in heaven that Jesus went up into heaven and crawled into so that he could be Lord of that cubbyhole. That's not the Christian faith. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what we're to believe. In the Great Commission, which is the reason why the Christian church exists, the Great Commission um, makes up our marching orders. That's why we're still here. In the Great Commission, Jesus said at the beginning of it, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, disciple the nations, baptizing them, teaching them obedience to everything that I've commanded you. Now I want you to notice how Jesus begins the Great Commission. 
He begins it with a claim about universal, absolute authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. If you, if you simply go to be a missionary or a church planter, you are being disobedient. If you say, I'm going to go tell people in Africa about Jesus, or I'm going to go across the ocean and become a missionary and church planter, I'm simply going to go. That is disobedience. Jesus didn't tell you to go. Jesus told you to therefore go. All right? He told you to go for the reason that he gave. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. Now, what does that mean? That means that there is no authority in heaven and on earth that Jesus is not senior to. If it's a city councilman, if it's a congressman, if it's a member of parliament, if it's a king, if it's a president, if it's a UN committee, if it's, a, if it's the UN general, uh, the general assembly or the security council, Jesus is in charge of that. Jesus outranks them, and he outranks them in the arena where they are operating. It is, you're, it's, a, it's a dodgy move. It's a Jesus juke move if you say, well, the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court, they're in charge of political things. Jesus is in charge of spiritual things. But Jesus did not say, all spiritual authority has been given to me, therefore go. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So if there is an authority, Jesus is in charge of it. If there's an authority out there, Jesus is senior to it. So Jesus is Lord. I've been arguing for years now that what is required is a return to Christendom. And I believe that before that can happen, we have to have Christians calling for a return to Christendom. That means explicitly Christian government. That means explicitly Christian government. I call, uh, the, the form I have in mind is, I call mere Christendom. Mere Christendom. If you like, you can call it mere fundamentalism. A free civilization, a free civilization is necessarily larger than any of the Christian denominations within it. But at the same time, a free civilization, I am convinced, has to be Christian. It has to be Christian. So, I propose no single established church. I propose no tax-supported denominations. But I do propose the formal adoption of the Apostles' Creed and without any hermeneutical funny business. I propose that as a nation, we formally confess together that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. I think we should say, yes, in the Constitution, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, you can say that in passing. You could say that in the preamble. It's not a, it's not a political action item, but it's the ground of your authority. One time I had a little exciting set to here. This was a number of years ago. Um, somebody wrote, uh, there was some local controversy. I forget what it was. But uh, somebody announced in the newspaper, I think it was, a, uh, it was a newspaper column. Someone wrote in a newspaper column that there is no reference to God in the United States Constitution. No reference to God. It's a godless document. And so I wrote a letter to the editor 
And, and I said, well, there is two, a reference to God in the Constitution. And I offered 10 bucks to the first Moscow High student who finds it. So that I offered a reward. And so there was a great deal of commotion, to, you know. <laughs> ah, no, because the Constitution's a godless uh, document, every, which everybody's been taught to believe. Well, after much toing and froing and backing and, backing and forthing and, and huffing and puffing, uh, one student uh, finally wrote in, he had found it. The Constitution was ratified in the year of our Lord, 1789. Who is that Lord? Jesus, the year of our Lord. Now, people are going to say, that doesn't count. That's, they were just saying that. That was just the date, right? That was just, they, they were just dating. They, they didn't think anything of it. And, but they do too think that, that sort of thing matters a great deal. If you have been following the work of, uh, uh, if you read any scholarly works, a common thing that is now uh, customary is to use the dates uh, 2018 CE, not AD, year of our Lord, but CE, common era. Or 500 BCE, before common era. The secularists care a lot about that kind of thing. They care a lot. They don't like saying in the year of our Lord because it means something. It means something to me too. It's the year of our Lord. Why Why? Why is this the year 2018? Because it's, it's, we measure our time from the time when Jesus rose from the dead. Right? And I think that we ought to explicitly uh, embrace that. And if someone says, well, if you want to get your master's degree, if you want to get, if you want to get credit for your thesis paper, or your research paper, you're going to have to use CE and BCE. You should say, fine, I'll do it. You know, I said, really? That's a that sounds like a compromise. No, Christ's empire and before Christ's empire. <laughs> now, I think we need to confess together that Jesus rose from the dead and our polity, our governance, everything ha assumes that. Now, if you protest that this would kill the great secular experiment that is America, I would reply that the great secular experiment that is America appears to have already gone out beyond, behind the barn and shot itself. The great secular experiment is, has got the staggers. Things are crazy. We, you can't say that our nation knows the difference between secular and religious anymore when we don't know the difference between a boy and a girl anymore. We can't tell up from down. We can't tell black from white. We are so muddled and so confused, and about the only thing we know is that we don't like Jesus. I think our response as Christians ought to be, well, we do like Jesus. We love him. And we believe that he is the reason everything hangs together, and he is the basis for uh, all the things that we have in our system of government that are good. Religious liberty is a good thing, but that's a Christian invention. That's a Christian invention. Religious liberty is not something that secularism, gener secularism generated. Religious liberty is an explicitly Christian value. So I believe that everything we say and do ought to be on the basis of the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. Now, I'm going I'm to spend just a minute here teaching you how to lean into things. 
Because what's going to happen if you find yourself in a secular classroom, in a secular university, and you say, well, I, yeah, I, I think abortion ought to be against the law. Someone's going to wheel on you and say, well, you see, what the problem is that you're just, um, you're just imposing your morality on people. Well, we don't accept your Bible. We don't accept your values. We don't accept your Jesus. And you, we want you to keep your dogmas off of our bodies and our choices. Okay? Now, what you need to, this is, I'm, I'm going to give you something here that you can take to the bank. You can live by. This, this has, this is sort of the Swiss army knife, what I'm about to give you. It's the Swiss army knife of Christian apologetics. And it applies in countless situations. It's called the inescapable concept. The inescapable concept. And, it's, and the phrase, the tagline, is not whether, but which. Not whether, but which. They say, you're trying to impose your morality. The answer is, all laws are imposed morality. The only, it's not whether we impose morality, it's which morality we impose. It's not whether we impose morality, because if we have cops, if we have laws, if we have people who will come with guns and take you away, if you do certain things, then somebody is imposing morality. It's not whether we impose morality, it's which morality we impose. Not whether, but which. So, someone says, well, I don't think you ought to be able to tell a woman that she can't get an abortion. Because you're, you're a Christian, she's not a Christian, she doesn't share your values, and you're imposing, you, you want to impose your morality on her. And I would say, well, yes, I, we, yes, that's correct. I want to impose uh, Christian morality on her and on the doctor. That's true. And they will step back. <gasps> he admitted it. He admitted that he wanted to impose morality. But then I would say, well, but you want to impose morality also. It's just a different morality. It's just as much of an imposition. It's just as coercive. I want to impose Christian morality on the abortion doctor, the abortion providing doctor, and on the woman. I want to impose Christian morality on her. But the doctor and that woman want to impose their secular morality on the baby. You're, you're imposing your morality. I'm imposing my morality. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether you impose morality, it's which morality you impose. Um, well, you're, I'm going to get to this when I talk about um, theocracy or th this theocratic part of the theocratic libertarianism. Someone's going to say, well, why don't I just, that's in my second point. Why don't I just go on to my second point? I got to talking. The libertarian aspect of what I'm talking about, number two, the libertarian aspect of this insists that most of our practical problems can be addressed through repealing laws and abolishing agencies. Through repealing and abolishing. When most people hear about theocratic anything, they assume that we will soon be confronted with Ayatollah weirdbeards um, chopping people's hands off for stealing something. And I say, no, that's, that's another part of the world, that's another religion, that's not, that's, uh, that's Islamic law, that's not what I'm talking about. So they, they're afraid that theocracy means the handmaid's tale, or theocracy means some sort of oppression. But if you took uh, what I'm proposing, what I'm proposing and my friends are proposing, and you 
applied, and we, and we just had a, uh, a magic wand that we could wave, and all of a sudden, the way we wanted it to be was there. The average American would not know what to do with all of the liberty that he has. He wouldn't know what to do with all the freedom. So, um, I like to say, here's the thought experiment. If I, if I were president, and what a glorious three days that would be. Right? <laughs> well, here, here's how it goes. They'll say, well, I think you, um, you guys just want to get the government into our bedrooms and start regulating sexual choice. You want the government in our bedrooms. Not whether, but which. It's not whether there's a standard, but which standard it is. It, not whether, but which. Okay? Look, I built my house. I built, I built, the, uh, built the bedroom. Built the bedroom windows. And I know what you guys do. Right? Keep the government out of my bedroom. The government tells me how far apart the sheetrock screws and the sheetrock have to be. The government tells me how big the window has to be and what kind of egress I can manage out of that window. The government tells me how thick the sheetrock has to be. The government tells me uh, that I may not remove this uh, tag from the mattress under penalty of whatever federal thing. What do you mean keep the government out of our bedroom? What are you talking about? The government laid down in excruciating detail what I needed, how I had to build my bedroom. What do you mean, keep the government out of my, out of my bedroom? See, the government, you, you're going to have standards, and it's just a matter of what kind of standards they are. So, all societies are theocratic. All of them are theocratic. With the only thing distinguishing them being the nature and attributes of the reigning theos. Theos is the Greek word for God. Um, so, Every society has an ultimate arbiter. Every standard, every, every society has an ultimate authority. There is a point past which no more appeals are allowed. And when you've gotten to the point where no more appeals are allowed, you have found the God of the system. You've located the God of the system. Now, Christians want to say the God of the system is outside this universe. The God of the system is at the right hand of God the Father. The God of the system rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, which enables me to stand before a lawless king or stand before a lawless Supreme Court or stand before a lawless president with an open Bible and say, thou shalt not. And I can appeal past the king, past the Supreme Court. I can appeal outside the world. Now, what's, this, what's the case if you can't appeal outside the world. What are you stuck with? You, you appeal all the way up. You, don't, you have some dispute. You appeal all the way up. And you get to the point where the highest authority in the cosmos is run by people like Nancy Pelosi. That's, that's the apex of your system if you're a secularist. For the Christian, there's a standard of absolute transcend, uh, uh, transcendental Holiness that cannot be bribed, cannot be bought off, cannot be corrupted. And I appeal to him, I appeal to that. So, not whether but which. All societies are a theocracy. The only question is, who is Theo? Who is Theo? What God? Which God? 
Since our current Theos, our current God, the current God of the system, happens to be a bloodthirsty maniac, and because I'm not a devotee of that particular religion, I would urge my fellow citizens to turn away from him and turn to our Heavenly Father. Why do I say the current Theos is a bloodthirsty maniac? Well, how about 60 million unborn children chopped up into pieces? That's bloodthirsty. It's wicked. And that's the work, that's the work of the God of our system. Now, the God of the, the Christian system is a God who shed his own blood. The God of the secular system is a God who sheds the blood of others. Right? That's Jesus gave himself to secure our salvation. The secular God, uh, which is demos, demos is the Greek word for people. Democracy indicate with, uh, indicates that demos is the God of the system and the God of the system is requiring sacrifices of blood. So, when people think that a Christian theocracy is going to multiply laws, think, think about this for a minute. Ten Commandments, how, uh, how many pages does it take to print the Ten Commandments? One. Or if you just said, let's take the commentary of all the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament and New Testament both, one book. Now, you say, that's, that's not oppressive. Then you go over to the U of I Law Library and go down and ask to look at the Idaho Code or wherever you're from. Go ask to look at the code, the law that governs and regulates you. Shelf after shelf after shelf of arcane minutia. Right? Their God is a totalitarian. Our God is absolute and a heavenly father. So what's going to happen is you're going to have a massive increase of actual liberty. So the first thing that I, the first thing that I would want to propose in a biblical law order is that the EPA, the IRS, the Department of Education, etc., would all be abolished. Legitimate functions of government, defense, and state, etc., would be significantly downsized or redirected. Downsized and redirected. In other words, we have a swollen government now, and our swollen government needs to be a lot smaller, a lot less involved in everybody's day-to-day -day life. One of my happy stories is uh, when the British, uh, in the 20th century, when the British finally left, uh, they, they had uh, ruled India for um, uh, many years, and when they finally left, uh, some enterprising researchers went up and you know went out into the back country to interview the natives of India to see how the departure of the British had affected them. You know, you know, the British have now left. Um, how does this affect your day-to-day -day life? And what they discovered was that these people in the outback of India had not did not know that the British had ever arrived. <laughs> it didn't really make any. It didn't really make any difference. But it makes a different difference to you. If you want to build your house, you've got to have to you care about the sheetrock screws, and you've got to care about the mattress tag, and you've got to care about a bunch of stuff. So that's the second thing. I am talking about a reduction. I'm not talking about um, 
oppressing everybody, give, to give, issuing a bunch of decrees, and now we're going to do it in the name of Jesus. What I'm saying is that Jesus and the secular God operate on different principles. Jesus, the Bible tells us where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Spirit of the Lord brings liberty, not suffocating oppression. You're not dealing with a... Um, when I was debating Christopher Hitchens, one of the things that would set him off is if I, if I referred to our Heavenly Father or God the Father, and he persisted in thinking of God the Father as a North Korean dictator uh, who is running a totalitarian police state. Well, God the Father is absolutely sovereign over all things, but he's sovereign over all things in such a way as to bring, send his son to die for our sins so that we could be liberated, so that we could be set free, so that we could live lives of personal responsibility and liberty. So that's the second thing. The first thing is that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, the lordship of Jesus Christ is going to be exercised in such a way as to cause you to grow up into maturity where you can be entrusted with liberty. That's what, uh, that's what a Christian system of government does. John Adams, our second um, president, once said, our constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. It is wholly unfit for any other. Our Constitution presupposes people are living self-controlled lives because people who are slaves to porn, slaves to pot, slaves to gambling, slaves to all sorts of personal vices are not going to be able to withstand the encroachments of a tyrannical government. The biggest, the, the most direct line way that you can, you can uh, adopt to stay free of government encroachments is to stand to confess your sins and live consistent Christian lives. The third smooth stone of theocratic libertarianism. The positive laws that I would like to see enacted would be in the area of constitutional process and reform. Constitutional process. I would like to urge. I would like to urge conservatives to start laboring for process reform uh, prior to content reform. Process reform prior to content reform. The kind of government we are currently abused by is precisely the kind of government that our Constitution was originally drafted to prevent. Consequently, I would like to see reform undertaken through process laws instead of content laws. By this, I mean laws of process restraining our rulers and not any new laws governing the peons. In other words, the founders uh, structured a lot of our constitutional law as a way of restricting our rulers. Today, when laws are passed, the, the intention is to restrict you. When the Constitution was drafted, as James Madison said, in the Federalist Papers, that the, the trick is to give the government enough power to enable it to govern uh, the governed, and at the same time to oblige it to govern itself. All right, so you want process laws that restrict what our rulers can do, that restrict what our rulers can do. And that's, the, that's how our Constitution was originally set up, and we've drifted, uh, we've drifted away from it.
So you want to restrain what they are able to undertake, what they are able to do. A good example of this, a popular example, would be term limits. Term limits, where nobody can serve in Congress uh, or in the Senate for more than two, two terms, let's say, or in Congress for more than four. Term limits. Or here's my personal favorite, favorite this is my proposal, that we have a law that, that requires none of the above to be on every ballot. Murphy, Schwartz, Smith, none of the above. And if none of the above ever wins, you hold, you hold the election over again. Okay? How many, how many people do you know who hold their nose and, you know, and, and they, they think, well, if God wanted us to vote, he would have given us candidates? Because I, there's Tweedledum and Tweedledee and, and Mutt and Jeff, and I don't oh. Well, a process reform would put none of the above there, and if there's a high level of dissatisfaction and none of the above wins, then you hold the election over again. So, the goal should be to have a government that stays within its appointed bounds. The government, a, a government that is obliged to stay within its appointed bounds. The goal should be to keep the termites out of the woodwork. Here's another... Um, little um, whimsical reform I would like to suggest. I would like to have um, the nation's capital be portable. So for this session, the Supreme Court is going to be in St. Louis. Uh, the next session, they're going to be in San Francisco. The next session, they're going to be in Seattle. And Congress is in Washington, D.C., New York City, Miami. You move Congress around and you move the Supreme Court around, and you move the president around. And then you can have sort of, uh, Washington DC can be a ceremonial place where you have the inaugurations and that sort of thing, but where the actual business is done on the road, um, because in Washington DC, as someone once said, the um, big government, the advent of big gov government was created by the two inventions, two inventions. One was the Xerox copier, where you could make multiple governmental forms, and the other was the air conditioner. Um, prior to the invention of the air, condi air conditioner, Washington, D.C. was not habitable year-round. The summer months were so hot and so muggy that everybody left. Um, but once somebody, some clown invented the air conditioner, they could stay there year-round. Well, that's the kind of process goal. Number four, a formal recognition of the lordship of Jesus is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. More is required than simple paper commitments. So, so for example, um, the United States has become a secular country, and the United Kingdom has become a secular country, and the United Kingdom doesn't have a First Amendment. All right, the, um, the Queen of England is the titular head of the Church of England. She is the defender of the faith. They are formally a Christian country, but they are every bit as secular as we are in practice. So if we had um, drafted the First Amendment with a little, you know, locked some of the doors, the First, the First Amendment has been radically misinterpreted. The First Amendment says, 
begins uh, by saying on, on this topic, Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of religion. The first thing that we should, you should notice is the only entity in the United States capable of violating the First Amendment is Congress. Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of religion. And what that meant was this. Our system of government is a federal system of government. The word federal comes from the Latin word foidus, which means covenant. It was a government by covenant. Now, in, interestingly, uh, the Latin word foidus uh, can also mean stinky, but that's uh, another discussion for another time. Federal government doesn't mean stinky government, although it can become that over time. Federal government ought to mean government by, uh, by covenant. And, and as we adopt this, as, as we live uh, covenantally, we are, well, I'll put it this way. The covenant, what, what, the, the covenant was between what parties? Well, the covenant was made between the states. The states gathered together and they formed the central government. They, they formed the central government and they said, and, and the Constitution is an express powers document, um, which means that the federal government only has the authorities, that only has the authority to do the things that are mentioned expressly in the Constitution and anything else that's not mentioned is reserved to the states or to the people. It's not the, not the government's uh, business. That's the 10th Amendment. So we are uh, under, we, we've come together as a, uh, a covenantal reality. In order for this system of government to work, the people have to be covenant keepers. They have to understand covenants. They have to keep their word. Uh, they have to know what, uh, uh, what, their, uh, what their word means. Now, if you had a state bird, let's say uh, anybody from a state other than Idaho know what your state bird is? Yes. Goldfinch from where? Iowa. Goldfinch. So goldfinch, if the, if the Iowans make the goldfinch their state bird, and the national bird is the bald eagle. Is this going to cause a war? No, almost certainly not. Okay, if you have a state flower and then there's a national flower, that's not going to cause a state war either. If you have a state uh, song and you have a national song, that's not going to cause a war. But suppose you have a state church and a national church. Suppose you have a church of Virginia or a church of Iowa, and then you have a church of the United States, and it's a different one. It's a different church. Well, that's just asking for it. Okay? You're just asking for a war, and you have to realize that in the 1600s, before our nation was um, uh, heavily settled, there had been massive religious conflict and civil war in England over uh, you know, between the Anglicans and the, uh, and the Independents and the Presbyterians. And they, 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 had, they had had a civil war, and there was a big religious uh, component to it. So our Congress said, Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of religion. There will be no, there's a Church of England, there's a Church of Denmark, there's a, there's a, a Church of Norway. There will be no Church of the United States. Why? Because when the Constitution was adopted, there were 13 colonies, and nine of the 13 colonies had established state churches. 
and they didn't want a, na a conflict between the, na the, the national setup and the, the state setup. So, in order to have this government by covenant work, you've got to have a nation full of covenant keepers. All constitutions arise from the people, and genuine allegiance to Christ is not going to happen unless there's a reformation and a revival. We have to have a, a, a grassroots reformation and revival. In order for any of this to work, we have to have countless preachers of the gospel faithfully declaring the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The role of government here is to stay out of the way. Okay? The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, Congress is currently involved in uh, either passing or tolerating other people restricting the free exercise of religion. Everything is being turned over on its head. Everything is being, it, this is a photo, we're living in photo negative times. All right, so the role of government is to stay out of the way, allowing such preachers free access to the people and thereby encouraging them to have at it. If you don't give a heck about the man with a Bible in his hand, as the staple singers taught us, just get out of the way and let the gentleman do his thing. There's a straight line blessing that runs from free grace to free men to free, and from free men to free markets. Basically, free grace, free men, freedom generally. And if you don't have that kind of free grace, nothing doing. Then number five, culture wars should be fought in the culture, not in the courts. If you have a tank war, you need to have tanks. If you have a naval war, you need to have ships. If you have a culture war, you need to have a culture. Culture wars should be fought in the culture, not in the courts. One of the central reasons for having a constitutionally limited government is so that one cultural faction does not get to cheat using the force of law to skew the outcome in their favor. Since law is coercive by definition, law is coercive by definition, the areas in which coercion is allowed should be radically limited. So what I'm proposing is that coercion should be kept to the absolute minimum. We shouldn't coerce people over the mattress tag on the mattress. We should leave, leave the guy alone, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't be coercive when it comes to the sale of 16-ounce sodas. We shouldn't be coercive when it comes to the, uh, was it Seattle that just, Seattle just banned plastic straws. I think it was pretty sure it was Seattle. Yeah, Seattle banned plastic straws. Restaurants aren't allowed to give you a plastic straw, I think unless you request one specifically. Was that? Anyway, it's stuff like that. Okay, so uh, you don't want the government meddling with all kinds of nitpicky, nickel-dime uh, things. Coercion is a big deal. Coercion is a big deal, and so we should want to keep coercion to the minimum. Uh, this is uh, just a parenthetical comment. Uh, something here reminded me of it. One time I was debating the head of the American Humanist Association. 
was a nice gentleman, and I was debating him in Virginia, and it was in front of a Christian audience. And we were debating whether or not the Bible should be used as a foundation for our law. I was saying the Bible should be used as the foundation for our law. He was saying the Bible should not be used as the foundation for our law. And one of his points was that the, we shouldn't use the Bible as the foundation for law because the Bible is stupid. Right? <laughs> he said, look, in the Bible, the Bible, the Bible prohibits the eating of shellfish. The Bible prohibits the eating of shellfish. You want to take a book that prohibits eating clams and oysters and use that as the basis of our law? Give me a break. And in my response, I said, well, this is a, a difference. Uh, I do belong to the covenant people of God. And it's true that God did give the regulation at one time in our people's history that we were not to eat shellfish. I'm debating this with a gentleman who, whose position, whose tribe believes that we all used to be shellfish. <laughs> well, that got a laugh. And, and it was really an odd moment for him because he was absolutely not, being, not used to being laughed at over evolution. Right? He, he just... But if there is no God in heaven, if we're just meat, bones, and protoplasm evolving upward... There's no fundamental problem with using coercion. Coercion is not a big deal if we're not created in the image of God. If we are created in the image of God, then the only, uh, then I, I should only feel free to, to coerce someone else if I have black letter instruction from God to do so. So um, I don't have, if someone says, if you do that, you're going you're gonna to trample all over the rights of rapists. I would say, well, I don't care. That's good. You know, let's, let's trample away. You know, if, if you do that, you're going to trample on the rights of murderers. Okay, fine with me. I don't mind being coercive when it comes to uh, rape, murder, kidnapping. I do mind being coercive when it comes to plastic straws and when it comes to whether you're allowed to have a plastic bag or you must take a paper bag. or I, That kind of thing is just tyrannical out the ears. So, since law is coercive by definition, and law is coercive by definition, the areas in which coercion should be allowed should be radically limited. And I think the only possible limiting factor that we can admit into this process is the Word of God. The Word of God does not come in as an excuse to exercise coercion across the board. The, the word of God is going to come in as the radically limiting factor. The law should pr protect life, liberty, and property. After that, the alternative visions for truth, goodness, and beauty may freely compete. Using their own money, voluntarily donated, the secularists and the atheists may build their own schools, write poems and novels, produce plays and movies, build cathedrals, compose concertos, and so on. The problem is that they won't. They, what they do oftentimes is with other people's money. And this is why we're in the financial straits we're in. As Margaret Thatcher says, the problem with socialism is that sooner or later, you run out of other people's money. <laughs> well, that's where, that's where we are. So it will not have escaped your notice that such free competition is a Christian value. And by limiting government in this way, we've already decided what is the best way for everyone. There is no neutrality. 
I'll, I'll say this again. I'll, I'll, I've been assuming it throughout. Limited government is a Christian value. The Christian approach to politics is that the government must be limited. Why? Because God is God and man is not. That's the reason. God, if God is God, then man is not. If there is no God over the system, then man can aspire to that slot. Man can aspire to become that God. So there is no neutrality. I don't want liberty for the secularists because secularism is true. It isn't. Secularism is an opium dream complete with flashing eyes and floating hair. I want liberty for secularists because Jesus is Lord. I want limited government that stays out of an atheist's life not telling him how to mow his lawn, not telling him, uh, you know, not bossing him around in all the details, because his atheism is false. I want to say, the Lord Jesus Christ requires us to respect you as made in the image of God. You have dignity. We're going to respect your life and your, respect your uh, approach to life, and we're going to keep the government out of it. So basically, Jesus is Lord, number one. Jesus is Lord. Two, theocracy is inescapable and is not nearly, a Christian theocracy is um, not nearly as scary as people want to make it. Three, positive laws are process laws. Number four, um, the, uh, uh, the government should be encouraged, should not do the preaching, but should be encouraging of uh, evangelism and church planting. And five, we need to engage in the culture with the culture. Thank you very much.